Hello and welcome to South Asia Chat, a podcast series brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. I'm your host, Nithya Subramanian, an editor at the Institute. The COVID-19 pandemic has taken a toll on economies around the world and India was no exception. The extended lockdown, return of migrant workers from cities to their hometowns, and the multiple waves of infections saw India's GDP contracting by 7.3% in 2020-21. While the financial data for the first quarter of FY2022 revealed a strong growth rate, there was more to it than what meets the eye. To decipher these economic numbers, we have with us Dr. Amitendu Palit, Senior Research Fellow, Research Lead Trade and Economics at ISAS. Thank you, Dr. Palit, for joining us today. Thank you so much, uh, Nithya. My pleasure to be on this discussion. The government recently released the GDP numbers for the first quarter of this financial year, which stood at 20.1%. What are your initial reactions to these figures? Uh, Do you think the economy has started looking up after a year of the COVID-19 pandemic taking its toll? Well, I think as far as the number is concerned, uh, it's definitely uh, a number which will not be recorded uh, across the quarters. It's a very impressive number. It's a remarkable number. 20 uh, percentage plus points increase vis-a-vis the last quarter of the previous year, the corresponding quarter of the previous year. Now, uh, This, of course, uh, however impressive it looks and sounds statistically, uh, needs to be looked at in the context of the uh, nature of calculation. As I mentioned, we are looking at uh, April-June, which was the first quarter of the current financial year, uh, which was also incidentally the period during which the second uh, wave of COVID-19 had affected India very, very severely. Uh, When we compare this with the April-June of the last financial year, uh, that was the time uh, when uh, COVID had just uh, begun uh, taking root in India. But the difference between the two periods was, I mean, if both can be called COVID periods, COVID-1 and COVID-2, in COVID-1, India went into a far more serious, severe and stringent lockdown which was organized by the national government across practically all spheres of economic, social, and cultural activity, which resulted in an almost complete stoppage of economic functions. But very interestingly, uh, when we look at the COVID-2, the current uh, financial year and the April-June quarter, What we notice is that notwithstanding the severity of the COVID-2 in terms of the toll that it took on human lives and resources, the government really was not that stringent on imposing lockdowns in the sense that there was no national government lockdown in terms of uh, orders uh, issued or instructions issued by the central government. The lockdown management was essentially kept to the state governments to be done with respect to their individual conditions and circumstances. And as a result of which, what probably happened was 
that there was a much lesser degree of economic activity and basic activity which got uh, to be sort of curtailed in the COVID-2 period as opposed to COVID-1. So there was much less of economic uh, damage insofar as the economic momentum and activity is concerned in this particular uh, quarter. And that is what has, uh, I suppose, been reflected uh, in the numbers because uh, it is quite, quite evident that the uh, recovery or the turnaround which started uh, from the October to December quarter of the last financial year and then slowly gathered some pace in the January to March quarter of the uh, last financial year as well, or the current calendar year. This was a momentum which I think the governments and the state governments were particularly careful in trying to ensure that it continues. So notwithstanding the hard uh, hit taken by the COVID, the economic momentum was sought to be maintained as much as possible. And therefore, what we get to see is a fairly sustained increase in economic activity, particularly compared with April, June of uh, 2021, uh, which was actually a very, very low baseline insofar as uh, the economic activity is concerned. So this is uh, where we are today. The question now that we need to uh, look at uh, seriously and probably reflect on in greater detail is whether this particular economic momentum, which has been sustained, will also continue over the remaining quarters or not. Now, what I think is encouraging is that we do see some fairly noticeable turnaround in a couple of sectors of the economy, which are important. The first of these is clearly the manufacturing sector, which uh, has been consistently uh, growing at a negative rate, if one can describe it that way, or experiencing contraction over the last financial year. But this quarter, it's exhibited a fairly robust turnaround. So has construction. So has a couple of other important service sectors, trade hotels, uh, financial real estate, public administration. So all in all, the sectors are uh, no more in red, if we can use the financial market terminology. They're all back to being in the green. They're all, in fact, experiencing double-digit growth. And whether this momentum is maintained over the next quarters that are going to come up is what now will be interesting to wait and watch. Thank you so much. I mean, we will certainly talk about the sectors um, down the line in our conversation. But, uh, you know, if you just looked at the numbers, uh, the, a breakup indicated that the, the, the revival or the growth, the GDP growth rate happened on the back of strong exports. Uh, what do you think are some of the sectors that did this heavy lifting? And is this export growth rate sustainable? I would argue that while exports have been doing well, the main thrust of the recovery in GDP has actually come from the domestic sectors. And that is uh, clearly because of the fact that if we look at the sectoral contribution to the Indian economy, uh, we know that the services are the main contributor to the Indian economy. Nearly two-thirds of the economic output of India comes from a variety of services, 
followed by agriculture and manufacturing. Now, uh, within manufacturing, because uh, manufacturing has the largest chunk of exports that India make, within manufacturing, clearly the exports have contributed to the recovery of the sector as a whole. But then what I would also argue that if this growth or if the exports were really the main driver, then we would have probably seen the recovery limited only to manufacturing only. Uh, what we actually get to see are uh, a kind of a broad-based pattern of recoveries uh, that are coming through in a variety of sectors. As I mentioned, uh, the services sectors, including construction, trade, hotels, finances, are actually experiencing good growth. And these are all sectors which are very strongly focused on the domestic market. So my uh, thinking in this regard would be that these are the sectors which have really uh, contributed strongly to the numbers that we see in the current quarter. And if we just uh, look at the other side of the picture, which is essentially the, the consumption investment side, then one of the interesting things that we also notice is that uh, private final consumption expenditure has actually reduced a little compared with what it was uh, during this time of the last year. Uh, but what has appreciably recovered is the gross fixed capital formation, which is essentially the investments that have gone into the economy. So I think what I could uh, probably make out from this change is that the April to June period was also a period when funds started being put into business activities in India. And uh, most of these funds are probably with a medium and long-term perspective in the sense that there were funds that probably have been getting into the startup space. There are funds which are probably coming in through the foreign direct investment route into manufacturing and services. And all in all, uh, April, June, notwithstanding COVID, has actually been a relatively good starting point for the year uh, from an economic sense. You did talk about manufacturing and construction picking up. Now, closely linked to these sectors are, of course, the migrant workers. Uh, as we all note, uh, read and saw, the lockdown resulted in the unexpected exodus of migrant workers from cities. Um, are there any indications of these rural workers returning to urban industrial areas to work? I think, uh, Nithya, as I mentioned before, uh, you know, I think this COVID-2 period, the April-June quarter of the current year, uh, again, uh, while admitting its severity, was also a period which I sense for which uh, the, the economy was somewhat better prepared in the sense that I'm not talking about the uh, public health or its capacity to respond to the severity of the infections, but I'm purely talking about the businesses. Uh, when uh, they, they saw the hit coming in, they probably went back to the experience of the previous year and tried to act on those as much uh, closely as possible in terms of putting in place safety protocols, uh, some of these protocols were already functional from the last year itself. And there were also specific measures, I think, which were taken for trying to safeguard the 
rid of labor as much as possible. Now, labor had indeed started coming back uh, from the early part of the uh, current calendar year. And a reflection of that is uh, visible in the uptick that we see in construction, because construction clearly is one sector which relies very, very heavily on uh, the availability of migrant labor uh, from the rural areas. And similarly, a sector like the trade hotels and transport as well, uh, which has actually shown a growth of 43.7% in the current uh, quarter and construction has grown by nearly 100%. Now, uh, these would not have been possible had not the labor been available because these are uh, very uh, predominantly labor-intensive, labor-productivity-based sectors. So my sense is and the feedback that one uh, is getting from the industrial uh, quarters is that, that to some extent, the business was a little better prepared. The business, in fact, uh, has not just been able to hold on to some amount of the labor and stop the you know, very chaotic movement of labor that happened last year. But they have also been equally emphatic in ensuring vaccination, organizing a large number of, uh, uh, let's say, uh, non-government actor-specific uh, movements to ensure speedy vaccination of the labor and uh, ensuring that they also get to stay in better conditions than what was before. I mean, in spite of all this, probably the human toll has been very large, but even discounting for that, the degree by which economy and manufacturing and the specific sectors were affected last year has been much less this year, because I tend to go back to that first point. Uh, the previous year was when there was a policy-driven shutdown. This year, there was actually no policy-driven shutdown because uh, last, last year, say, things like uh, activities, activities like transport, for example, were completely blocked out. Uh, all manufacturing was closed, essential, non-essential, everything. But this year, from the vast landscape of measures that the states have taken, the states consulted the industry, the government and industry consultation this year has been much, much better. Last year, this was far more abrupt than what it was this year. And the lockdowns were very specific, limited, and concentrated upon uh, high COVID hotspots. So I think the impact of that and the sense behind those moves are becoming clear in these numbers that we are getting to see. There has been much, much better economic management of the conditions surrounding COVID. We, we all know that a large component of the GDP is consumer spending, uh, which has contracted by 8.9%. Why do you think this has happened? And do you think the coming festive season would boost consumer spending? Would there be a revival of sorts, people spending more money on uh, uh, on not luxury, but of course, uh, high -end, making high-end purchases, high-price purchases. Nithya, that's a very important point that you have raised. And I, I think that uh, this actually, if one looks at the demand side of the economy, the consumption expenditure is a bit of a worry. And I mentioned this specifically because I think uh, if one goes back and looks at the 
categories or the sources of demand that typically has been driving uh, the economy in India, uh, consumption has been the most important uh, source of demand. Now, uh, the, the fact that the consumption expenditure is actually not increasing, I think points to a number of factors. And while these are partly COVID-induced, some of these might also be more secular in nature. Uh, I think the first point that we need to note is that the purchasing power of the consumer has been declining in India. And the reason behind that is nothing but the high inflation rate. Now, the inflation rate uh, is probably uh, a rate at this point in time, which has not gone through the roof, but nonetheless, it's hardening and it's not showing signs of uh, mellowing down. As a result of which, the pinch is being felt on household consumption insofar as the ability of households to maintain their standard purchase of monthly or weekly consumption is concerned. And the household items are experiencing that pinch. So uh, the other thing, and there are very... Uh, interesting developments that has been happening uh, of late. I mean, I, I just like to take this opportunity to reflect on a particular um, example. Uh, what I have seen from some personal engagement uh, with the health sector, including the retail side of it, is the fact that the cost of medicines in India, a large number of medicines, I'm not talking about the essential ones necessarily, but also the ones which are for lifestyle uh, ailments, also the ones which are more in the nature of surgicals and so on and so forth. The cost of these have actually become very, very high. Now, one of the reasons behind that is, of course, uh, the increase in demand and the shortage in supply. But interestingly, because of the cost getting high, including that of medical consultation, there is a tendency among the relatively lower middle income categories or middle income categories to step out of the space of uh, mainstream allopathic medical consultation and shift more to the uh, alternative uh, therapies like homeopathy and so on and so forth. Now, that again is a move which is forced by the inability to consume more in the sense of incomes not fetching as much of consumption as they were before. And let's not forget the fact that if we take the COVID part away, COVID really has uh, hit people's uh, income earning abilities as well in so far as uh, there have been layoffs, there have been retrenchments, there have been salary cuts. But this is something which was not brought on just by COVID. The Indian economy was actually in a bit of a secular downturn, even before the COVID stuck across five or six quarters. And there was this pinch, which was being felt by a large number of households and uh, even the salaried class. And if you look at it from the perspective of the fact that in India, the middle-income group, including the higher middle-income group in the urban areas uh, particularly, has also been holding on to large amounts of debt, particularly the debt that has gone into their investments in real estate which are not fetching adequate returns, and yet they're having to service those dates. I think all these are putting the households in a particularly precarious position. 
And uh, when it comes to private final consumption expenditure, if you move out of the households and look at the industry business side, then the industry and business side clearly has also found the last one year or 18 months of period where uh, they have been growing slow on their respective uh, investments, particularly on the services sector for the obvious reason of returns having got limited compared with what it was in the past. But this, to me, is not a very healthy sign because if consumption expenditure in India is not recovering, uh, we might uh, need to find another alternative source of supplementing demand. The only option in that respect is investment. And that is probably where the government is uh, looking to uh, monetize assets, disinvest equity in state-owned enterprises as ways of mobilizing as much funds as possible. But I think uh, slowdown in consumption is certainly not a good sign. Yes, uh, what you've said just ties in with my next two questions. Uh, firstly, let's talk about inflation. Uh, the Reserve Bank of India recently said that the focus should be on reviving the economy rather than tackling inflation which is now at around 6%. Do you agree with the RBI's uh, suggestion? And uh, you just mentioned, of course, that uh, for any further rise in inflation would affect consumer spending, which would also have a cascading effect on the GDP. But mostly I'd like to ask you, do you agree with the RBI's uh, suggestion? I think uh, before I uh, you know, actually take to the uh, point that has been raised by the RBI, uh, I'd just like to reflect on a particular statistic for the year. Uh, the GDP, if it, is, uh, if it is measured in constant prices, that is uh, neutral of uh, the price rise, has been estimated at 18.8%. Uh, Sorry, my apologies. The GVA, the cross value added, has been estimated at 18.8%. Uh, and if it is taken at current prices, that is including of inflation, it has been estimated at 26.5%. If one uh, looks at the GDP, the same comparisons at constant prices, 20.1%. And at current prices, 31.7%. So you see the difference between this uh, net of inflation and inclusive of inflation estimations is rather, rather large. So if we look at the GDP difference, for example, GDP at constant prices, 20.1%, and GDP at current prices, that is when the GDP is measured, including the current levels of prices, is 31.7%. So this entire difference of more than 10% between the two GDPs is actually attributable to inflation. Now, this is not a small number by any yardstick. I mean, we are in the Indian context aware of the fact that economic growth in India is certainly not price agnostic. It's not price neutral. Economic growth in India has always involved a trade-off with inflation. If the GDP numbers rise, then we see the prices rising because there is a demand factor that comes into play. Producers take the opportunity to sometimes respond to the higher demand by raising the prices of their articles. And at the same time, the Indian economy has certain supply bottlenecks which impacts the delivery 
leading to rise in prices, uh, not for uh, demand supply reasons, but more for imperfection reasons. But in this particular instance, if we are looking at the degree of inflation which uh, the economy is encountering, uh, there is no doubt about the fact that from a policy perspective, from a healthy economy perspective, this is a number uh, which needs to be tackled. This is a number which needs to be tackled, which needs to be brought down. But for the Reserve Bank of India, the challenge now is uh, to whether focus more on controlling the inflation, which uh, incidentally has for several years been the primary objective of the Reserve Bank of India. And the Reserve Bank of India has, in fact, in the past been criticized for not coming out with a monetary policy which is reasonably expansive, which is reasonably accommodative of uh, expanding the volume and supply of money in the economy. That would help and sustain greater spending, greater expenditure, and fuel economic growth. That has not really been the preferred policy of the RBI. RBI has preferred to walk the tightrope in this regard, not going for as expansive a monetary policy as maybe the Ministry of Finance would have wanted, largely because they wanted to control inflation. Now, if today the Reserve Bank of India is taking a different position on this, then obviously it is an indication of the fact that there is a shift in perspective. And there is a shift in perspective uh, with a view to ensure that the economic recovery that has been secured uh, during the last, uh, not just one quarter, but maybe a last couple of quarters, needs to be maintained. Now, if that needs to be maintained, then inflation has to become a secondary objective. I'm not arguing that inflation has to be abundant as an objective at all. Uh, insofar as its management is concerned, but it needs to become a secondary objective. And that is why probably we are seeing that the Reserve Bank of India really has not gone for any increase in the rate of interests in the market. It uh, is trying to keep the rates low as much as possible, as much balanced as possible to ensure that the cost of loans remains manageable to ensure that those who are willing to invest are able to mobilize their credit with uh, you know, uh, a, a sort of kind of a reasonable price of that credit from the banks as far as concerned. And also at the same time, uh, they're probably also trying to ensure that the money supply in the economy remains reasonably at a level where the consumers are not facing a shortage of liquidity. Now, all these are, to some extent, risky steps. All these are risky to the extent that there is a downside. There is a downside insofar as their impact on prices are concerned. Now, uh, on this, I think on the dilemma of whether to support growth or to manage prices, it's always a divided house. I mean, I personally, at this point in time, uh, would think that it is an extremely difficult choice to make. I would uh, argue that for the monetary authority like the Reserve Bank of India, it's uh, likely to be a view which is going to be determined by the objective quarter-by-quarter -quarter conditions and uh, 
Clearly, the RBI doesn't want to go for counter-cyclical measures. It wants to follow the trend that has been set and supported. So maybe if the next quarter is one which also yields a substantial level of good growth, giving the RBI the confidence that the economy is more or less back on track and there's no further severity of the COVID, then it might just go back to a more cautious management of the monetary policy with a view to tame the crisis. This brings me to the last question. Um, the government in the last one year has announced many measures to boost and revive the economy. We saw that during the budget, a large disinvestment strategy was unveiled. Recently, we saw the finance minister announce the asset monetization pipeline. And of course, there have been other incentives that have been given uh, during the year. What do you think is the status of these measures and how much will it really boost business and investment sentiments? Well, I think to an extent, the fact that we did see a grass, uh, sorry, cross capital formation increasing in the last quarter uh, with respect to a quarter over the previous year's corresponding quarter is an encouraging sign. Is an encouraging sign in the sense that at least the investment momentum the economy is better than before and i'm quite sure that uh, this investment momentum is not just only attributable to the steps that the government has taken but it's also to an extent reflective of the private investors continuing or if one may be optimistic enough to describe it as the growing interest uh, in in uh, the indian economy but on the other side, uh, there are measures that have been announced and which are expected to substantially strengthen uh, the Indian uh, exchequer treasury in terms of mobilization of revenues, in terms of generating sufficient amount of growth. When we look at something like the national infrastructure pipeline, uh, which is being implemented, and for which now there is a backup that is coming from the national monetization policy insofar as monetizing the existing brownfield assets are concerned. Now, all these are expected to uh, really boost growth, uh, both from a supply side as well as from a demand side. The point over here uh, clearly is that these are not going to yield results immediately because uh, when it comes to something like infrastructure and its mobilization, its active resurgence across the country, that is an activity which is going to produce a large number of economic opportunities, including creating jobs for the low-skilled part of the labor force. But that would also require, at least as far as private sector participation is concerned, construction of the right contracts with the right clauses to ensure that if there are stoppages, if there are delays, if there are disruptions, the private sector does not end up being on the receiving end. And when I say private sector, I'm not just alluding to the domestic private sector, also to the foreign investors. So uh, to, to kind of sum it up, Nithya, I think the bigger question over here is that by what extent will the regulatory framework, both at the center as well as the states, be able to support the policies that have been announced. I mean, the policies have been announced with, with good intention of uh, giving the economy as much of a boost as possible under the current conditions. 
but there's still a lot of background work left in a large number of areas. And let's also not forget the fact that uh, the government has really uh, gone out on a spending spree. When we look at initiatives like the production-linked incentives in manufacturing, uh, the government is really subsidizing higher production uh, through cash incentives. And this means large outputs. So at some level, these policies must start yielding results in terms of fetching more revenues, in terms of generating more jobs and livelihoods. If that doesn't happen, then there will be a limit uh, to which the government can actually maintain this. And that limit might actually appear sooner than expected, unless and until the regulations and the ecosystem backs up the policies. So now, uh, to a very, very large extent, it is important for the rest of the stakeholders in the economy, uh, outside of the central government, including the businesses and the state governments to really step into the act as proactively as possible. Thank you, Dr. Palit, for joining us today. It was really wonderful having you at our podcast. Thank you so much, Nika. It was my pleasure. You were listening to South Asia Chat. To learn more about our work, visit us at isas.nus.edu.sg. Also follow us on our social media handles, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you.